We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw. We go tit for tat. We have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. Welcome to the Moose and Runes Podcast, this episode 154, alongside Matt Rooney. I am Joe Musso, but we are not important. We have a bull's brain on the pod today. He's been on before to talk about everything from NBA playoffs, finals, bulls, and beyond. But we're talking last dance with Mark Shinowski on episode 154. We got to get right to it, Matt. But first, I must ask you. How are you? I'm doing great. We, we, we get the chance to talk with a, a guy who had a front row seat to this whole Last Dance documentary right after we just got to watch the whole Last Dance documentary. Usually, I love listening to you talk, Joe. I love hearing your opinions on sports, but right now, I'd much rather hear his, if that's okay inter- with you. You just, you just jumped. I, you, I just had a nice little clean toss there, and you jumped my toss. You know, you could have, you, instead of being you critical, know, you could have just finished. We literally literally it. outside of the Mark Shinowski interview, we had two small things to do in this podcast, and you couldn't just let me do them, man. Well, you asked me how I was doing. I told you. Nah, that's enough. Here's Mark Shinowski. Who can set the court on fire? Only the bulls. We now have the pleasure of welcoming and reoccurring guests here on the Moose and Moose podcast, longtime NBA and Bulls analyst, and most recently of Last Dance fame, I might add, Mark Shinowski joining us here on the Moose and Moose podcast. Uh, Mark, it is always a pleasure to have you here, and we figured who better to uh, shed some light on the 10-part docuseries than the man that made both audio and visual presence in, uh, in the Last Dance. Uh, Mark, it was great to hear your voice and kind of see you in some of those shots, in some of those scrums. I'm sure it, uh, it ticked up a ton of memories in you. But uh, first and foremost, hello. Thank you for joining us again, Mark. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was kind of funny, the, the one scene where Jerry Krause walked off to the podium and walked right by me. I mean, the look on my face kind of summed up the reaction of all the media. It's like, really, you're going to pull this? I mean, the guy never never talks. And then I think he's in and he decides to storm off. Uh, yeah, we will, my uh, first question was: Did you, yeah, you remember that specific press conference? You just did, was was it? Uh, I forgot who said it, or if we even know who said it. But right after your crowd stormed off, you heard one of the media members mutter off, mutter, just like "Great job" or something like that. Some side comment. Yeah, do you remember being in that press room and kind of what that what that mood was like before and after? Yeah, it was actually on the on the practice court, and it was Craig Sager of TNT who asked the question, <laughs> and you know that was one of those things where. You know, the local media by that point was so burned out with getting no access to the players. And yet anytime a Mod Rashad or, you know, a Craig Sager would blow in, Jordan would sit down and talk to him. And it was, it just got to be pretty, uh, frustrating to the point where, you know, there was only a few questions into that media briefing and, and Sager asked him about backstabbing between him and Phil. And so, you know, Krause took the opportunity to just, to just storm off. And that's why someone from the scrum yelled, thanks, Craig, you know, because, you know, we got very little access at that point, and that press opportunity was cut short because of the way the question was phrased. So uh, that whole season, the last dance season, was, was a nightmare for local media because at that point you could tell from the comments from Jordan and some of the other Bulls that they were totally burned out on all the media attention. It, they had become larger than life where they had to, you know, sneak in and out of their hotels on the road, and it just, it just got to be almost a circus. It was almost like, you know, they were the Beatles or something on the road and, and they had to try to find a way to shield themselves from all the fan attention. And that really had a direct impact on the local media. 
as I mentioned, they were good about doing national stuff because that was a way to, you know, uh, enhance their brand and their platforms. But, you know, in terms of the local stuff, we, we did a lot of uh, Steve Kerr and Bill Wennington interviews that year. <laughs> well, um, I mean, we can go a hundred different directions here, but you make a you make a very sentient point there about the coverage in the final season. But you know, this might be a little bit inside baseball, but it's kind of what we do here uh, on the podcast and when we have you here. But Mark, just from kind of the inception of the era in in Michael joining the team and things evolving, and then into the early '90s, into the late '90s. Can you give us an idea of, you know, what that crescendo was like? When was the moment that you knew you were covering the Beatles, you were standing around greatness, that this was pop culture just as much as it was sports? Well, I actually came to Chicago in April of 1990, which was just before the playoff run that ended in Game 7 at the Palace in the, the infamous Scotty mm-hmm. Pippen migraine game. And you know, I, I was kind of swept up in it so quickly that I didn't really get a chance to ease into it. You know, I'd been working in Milwaukee, and I'd covered the Bucks a lot and the NBA a lot from 1987 to 90. And then when I came to Chicago, um, I was covering more Blackhawks than Bulls, but occasionally they would send me out to cover a practice. And, and I was actually at the, the Game 7, the Pippen game. They were going to send me on to Portland to do some preview work for the finals had, had they won that game. And... You know, it was just it was just unbelievable the atmosphere at the palace that day, and the, and the Bulls got off to a bad start, and we were really weren't aware. You know, I, sometimes when you're covering a game live, you don't really aren't aware of all the TV coverage, so we didn't know the the full details of what was going on with Scotty. Um, obviously, he played very poorly, and he he took I th- thought he took a lot of unfair criticism afterwards. Uh, you know, in terms of not being able to to play through it. Um, I have no uh, familiarity with microgenetics from people I've talked to. They could be completely debilitating. Um, so I, I thought that some of the criticism was really unfair, and it stuck with Scotty for a long time. I mean, it even came up in the last dance. I mean, uh, you, you can criticize Scotty for not coming coming back in with the, with the 1.8 second situation in '94, and the contract thing. You know, he kind of took that to, to a ridiculous degree. But you know, I, I never thought that that he should be held accountable for what happened on, on that day in Detroit, and it was just another hurdle the Bulls had to clear to finally get through the Pistons the following year and win that first championship. You brought up Scotty there and kind of how he was portrayed a little bit in the documentary, and there was a report yesterday or the day before saying he was pretty livid with kind of the uh, how he was portrayed and how he was made to look, and obviously uh, we don't really know what the migraine feels like, but obviously that seems legit, but when Jordan was asked about it, you could tell he was a little bit shaky, and then the contract uh, dispute early on was, was highly... Um, brought up. I mean, do you think Scotty got a fair shake? Do you think he was represented fairly? Do you think he was represented in a bad light? Or do you think he got a fair shake in that documentary? Well, when you consider all that he's accomplished in his career, being one of the 50 greatest players of all time, a multiple-time All-Star, six-time NBA champion, you know, to dwell on the negatives, I thought was a little bit unfair. You know, all of us in our lives have days that we're not super proud of, but they don't happen on a national stage where the whole world is watching and I thought that to pick out those instances and really make it sound like that was the essence of Scottie Pippen was a, was a little bit unfair. I know that we've heard different reports in the media that, that Scottie's unhappy and he hasn't done any interviews since the last dance first aired. So I don't know when and if there's the time will come where he's going to speak out. Obviously, we heard Horace Grant uh, make his comments over the last oh, yeah. couple mm-hmm. of days. So, you know, I'm very Scotty. Scotty is a very proud guy. Obviously, you know, I had a chance to cover him throughout most of his Bulls career. 
he's one of these guys that, that had a, that a, had a tough upbringing. He came out in the last dance. And this is something I wasn't even aware of was was the issues with with his father and, and his older brother. You know, both being being paralyzed and growing up in this huge house and, and in the poverty that they had to experience. That is going to have a, a, a profound impact on, on how your life is going to go forward. And that was one of the reasons why Scotty signed that long-term contract because he, he knew nothing but poverty growing up and he wanted to be able to have some security for himself and, and help his family out. And because of the rules at the time, the Bulls just couldn't tear up that contract and, and give him a, a brand new one. Like they, there was a period of time when teams could do that. So I think that for some of the fan base, they feel like the Bulls mistreated Scotty, but they were just abiding by the rules that were in place at the time. And obviously, when he left the Bulls, they executed a sign and trade so he could make Rockets in a deal. I don't think the, I think both both sides probably made some mistakes along the way, but I think that uh, that, that Scotty was, was treated well when he was here. He signed a contract that uh, unfortunately turned out to be a mistake, and he had to live up to the terms of it. And, and you know, he was he was one of these guys that. Maybe it was because of his upbringing or just his, his personality, but early in his career and really through most of his career, he was uncomfortable doing doing a lot of media uh, where Jordan was eloquent and always had the smile going. Scotty was always a little bit uh, difficult to do interviews with. Uh, he, he didn't really expand on, on many comments. He rarely smiled, and, and he, it always seemed like, like something was bothering him. And Perception is reality a lot, especially in the media age, and, and I think that that hurt Scotty as well because he, he didn't have that magnetic smile that Jordan had. Uh, Horace Grant was always friendly with the media. You know, later on, you know, I mentioned Kerr and Wennington. You know, you know some guys mm-hmm. that, that, that really took advantage of the media spotlight. But Scotty was a little bit uncomfortable with, uh, you know, six TV cameras and, and 20 microphones uh, you know, in front of him after a practice or after games. And, and, and that's one of those things – in the, in the modern age where if you're not good in the media, it generally has an impact on how you're evaluated in terms of uh, what you did in your career. Yeah, and, and I think that it, it was really interesting, at least from the standpoint of where I was watching this and how I was taking it in, because, you know, being born in 1990, I don't have recollection of the first three. I do remember the last three. Those are kind of my first sports memories. So this unearthed a lot that I didn't know and helped me – kind of remember what I already did have tucked away mm-hmm. somewhere in my brain. I'm interested, Mark, in how you digested this. Were there any emotions, feelings, memories that it kicked up in you that you maybe had tucked away for the last 20-so years? Well, I was really uh, uh, amazed and pleasantly surprised that Jordan was as candid as he was because, you know, the whole Be Like Mike uh, Gatorade campaign and all the commercial endorsements he's done – he always shied away from speaking out on, on political mm-hmm. issues, which was uh, one of the topics that they mentioned in the documentary. And he was always, this guy was, uh, you know, America's sweetheart. You know, he was, he's kind of a Teflon guy. Uh, no matter what happened, he would always uh, be able to give that big smile and, and have a media briefing and, and whatever controversy might have been at the time would quickly go away. And after he retired, you know, he pretty much shied away from most interviews. You rarely see Jordan uh, speak about anything. <laughs> so for him to sit down and and be his unvarnished, unfiltered, expletive-filled uh, explanation of who he is as a competitor, what he thought about some of his opponents and some of his teammates, I thought it was was an amazing piece of television. Uh, obviously, 
some of his teammates now are unhappy because it was totally a Michael Jordan documentary told from his perspective with his people in place to edit out things that they didn't want presented. So it was, it was you know, the whole production, I think you could say, was flawed in that it was a Michael Jordan documentary, but who wouldn't want to know, get inside the mind of what many consider the greatest player of all time? And I think from that perspective, it was a huge hit. But I can understand where maybe some of his teammates or maybe some of his opponents during that era might think that it was a, a little bit uh, of a, 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 a skewed uh, presentation of what the reality really was like at that time. Yeah, it's a pretty good point because, you know, if this was a 90s Bulls documentary without an appearance from Michael Jordan, without Michael Jordan's interview, it still would have done fine, but nowhere near the, you know, national attention that it's gotten. And now with him that he was able to get his hands on it, kind of edited the way he wants it, obviously. We got Michael Jordan, and I think it was that much better because of it. Um, I want to ask you about the the final two off seasons, kind of with those teams going into the '97 season or the going into the '98 season, '97 '98, where it was people thought everyone was coming back, but it was still kind of up in the air. And then after that season, after the second three feet, where it was back up in the air, but kind of people were feeling the other way. Talk just about kind of the feel around the team, those two offseason, kind of the general impressions you might have had, whether or not they were going to come back for that third championship or if you thought they might have had a chance to make it for a fourth run. Well, it was pretty well known in the media that the, the Bulls had considered trading Scottie Pippen before the 97-98 season. Uh, Jerry Krause had become enamored of uh, Tracy McGrady, a high school player coming out, and Ron Mercer of Kentucky. And who eventually signed with the Bulls. He got Ron Mercer eventually. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of cool, <laughs> wasn't it? But, but yeah, they, they, had, they had talked seriously about trading Scotty to Boston for a couple of high lottery picks and, and going on about the start of a rebuild. And there was also a lot of uncertainty about Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson, uh, obviously, that came out of the documentary that the Bulls had been flirting with Tim Floyd for a number of years and that, that the relationship between Phil and Jerry Krause had deteriorated to the point where neither pretty knew if they wanted to go through another season. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf at that point interceded and, and, and said, let's uh, let's get you back for one more year and, and we'll make another run at it. And then, of course, Jerry Krause made, made those infamous comments before training camp that Phil can go 82-0 and 0 and he's done, uh, which you know he never could walk back or never was willing to walk back. And I think at that point, Phil Jackson, who was a very proud, very stubborn guy in his own right, decided that that there's no way I'm coming back. And uh, we found out in the last episode of the documentary that, that Jerry Reinsdorf reached out to him in July of 98, asking if he'd come back for one more year and go for that seventh championship. And, and Phil, and, I, and when, he, when, he, when he made those comments, it's time. It's time. I, I've, I've heard Phil wax poetic so many times, and, and that was just something that he had decided, obviously, before the season even began, that there was no way he was coming back. And he was there was no uh, argument that could persuade him to do otherwise. You know, Michael talked about the fact that, you know, the other guys would have come back on one-year contracts and, you know, we could have got filled back. I'm not so sure about that. And and as far as Scotty, Scotty was gone. There was, Scotty was not going to come back on a one-year yeah. contract. So I think, you know, that's – you look back at something – 20 years later and you've got this romantic view of it and I think in Michael's view he felt like well if I get him in a room I could persuade him to come but so many of those feelings were entrenched there was a lot of bitterness there I don't see any way that they could have extended that that team another year so um, it, it's great it's great to wonder what what if if they would have come back in that strike short season but I think they had, they had run their course the, the dynasty had run its course had a serious age factor on that team 
you could see in just barely surviving Indiana and, and Jordan having to carry him in that game six when, when Pippen had the back injury, they were running on fumes. And, and I, I don't know, even, even with the lockout shortening the season the next year, I don't know, even if they had everybody back, if they would have won that championship. So you, you brought up Jerry Krause there a couple times, too, and, and that was, uh, I think, from episode one, kind of one of the, the hotter topics people wanted or were, were talking about was, was his portrayal and kind of how he was kind of painted to be the villain uh, of this whole thing. And I guess that would make sense if, you know, Michael Jordan kind of had last edit and last saying all this. How do you think Krause got portrayed? Was he kind of the villain of this team? I mean, was it was it his fault that this thing all kind of collapsed, blew up? What were your impressions of Jerry Krause? I know you said he didn't have much interaction with him because he didn't give you guys much media access, but do you think he was portrayed uh, fairly in this whole thing? Well, one of the things that really came out is that, that Jerry had a very colossal ego and felt like he was the best executive in the history of professional sports and that uh, he didn't get as much credit as he deserved for building championship teams. And I will give him credit for a lot of the moves that he made uh, surrounding Jordan with complimentary talent. I mean, uh, it was a long process going, you know, from the mid-80s when he came in, bringing in uh, Horace Grant, Scottie Pippen were his first big moves, and he traded Charles Oakley for Bill Cartwright to get a, a defensive-minded center that, that could could complement what Jordan would do. And, you know, he, he made some good draft picks. They, they drafted Stacey King and B.J. Armstrong in, in 89, they, they filled in with some veterans around those guys that, that would contribute to a couple of wins along the way. And, and I thought that, that, that Krauss had a pretty good understanding of the best way to structure teams around the brilliance of Michael Jordan. But unfortunately, you know, he couldn't handle the, the, uh, the personal relationships. It was always, he, he always wanted to, to feud with guys and, and try to show that he was smarter. And, you know, he wasn't good with the media. He would, would be very condescending. So he was, the subject of a lot of uh, critical comments from from all the columnists in town. He uh, he just couldn't get out of his own way. He was a very good executive. He was a tireless worker, excellent scout, but his, he didn't know how to manage per, uh, interpersonal relationships. And in the end, that's what uh, broke up the dynasty. Yeah, Mark, it was very interesting to see Jerry Krause portrayed the way he was. I really didn't have any um, preconceived notion of him other than you know, he was kind of the mind that brought this group of players together. And while it was, as we said, an MJ documentary very much, and that's kind of what uh, the people, I don't know if they wanted it, but that's what the people got. And I was very entertained by it, kind of reigniting that legacy. But the cast of characters around him, we got a little Scotty Burrell. We obviously got the Steve Kerr segment in this last episode. Was there a guy that, you know, through the height of it all, you could always go to to kind of get a little bit of um, a little bit of that background information that you needed to do the work that you wanted to? Were there any guys uh, kind of in that cast of characters over uh, whatever the eight-year span that were your go-to guys that maybe we wouldn't have expected them to be? Yeah, during the first three feet, Horace Grant was really good. I got to know him uh, quite well, uh, covering a lot of practices and, you know, getting a chance to talk to him one-on-one occasionally. Back in the first three feet, there was, they would let you go back in the weight area, and Horace was one of the guys that would, uh, would lift weights uh, long after practice, trying to you know build up his strength to go up against the Pistons, and yeah, and I got to know him pretty well, and then he had a, a very good perspective on things. You know, he didn't, he he wasn't as starstruck as maybe some of the some of the guys were with Michael, and and he would give you some perspective on what was going on. Second three peat Steve Kerr was the go-to guy for everybody in the media. I mean, we've seen Steve uh, as a as a, as an analyst at TNT and as a head coach with the Warriors. You know, you just get it. 
amazed by how comfortable he is interacting with reporters and, and dealing with just questions about anything. So mm-hmm. those are the guys, those are the players that, that you get a chance to know. I mean, the assistant coaches, you know, really were, were kind of kept away from the media. You didn't really get, you know, on some teams, assistant coaches are the guys you can get to know pretty well. Um, you know, there, there were some differences uh, in, in the two, three P terms of, of who, who were the assistants, but you did have, have techs and, uh, uh, I'm trying to think who else was on all three. I think Tex was the only one because it was yeah. it was Frank Hamlin and Jimmy Rogers the second time around, and it was Johnny Bach was there for the first three beats. So, you know, there were some changes in the assistant. Jim Clemens was there, um, but Phil tried to keep those guys away in terms of the, he didn't want getting them getting too close to the media and, and maybe giving away some uh, game strategy or personnel evaluations that he wanted kept close to the vest. So, um, you know, there wasn't there wasn't anybody that that I was aware of that was really uh, spilling state secrets. I'm sure some of the beat guys. I'm sure some of the beat guys got to know the assistant coaches better just by you know. There's a lot more dead time when you're on the road and there's less media. So I, I think that you know some of the beat guys probably develop relationships with the assistant coaches. But but for us, you know, it was it was very controlled, and you had to you had to work hard uh, to try to develop some some kind of a trusting relationship with players because there was so much media that that generally. Uh, you know, if they didn't know who you were, they were they were kind of suspicious of what your motives were because people were looking to make their name as a writer or, or a broadcaster by doing you know some great report about one of the bull stars. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be picked up somewhere nationally, I'm sure. Right. But, uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Steve and just being able to experience that firsthand as well. It's almost as if you don't have to earn Steve's trust; you just have to keep it. You have to give him a reason not to trust you. Uh, sure. In my time yeah. in, in Northern California, he was so forthright with everything. I mean, in the midst of an NBA Finals or, or a playoff run, he was kind of a breath of fresh air in dealing with some of these uh, other individuals that are a little bit more lock and key. Um, one thing that was not secret was the coverage of Dennis Rodman. And I was most interested to see, you know, every Monday going into work, uh, people who didn't grow up in Chicago and how illuminating this was for the character that was Dennis Rodman. Um, do you have a Rodman anecdote? Cause I love that scene of everyone rushing up the stairs as he was getting shoved yeah, out of the back of the stadium. Like, you were there that day. It had to have been like trade deadline every day trying to cover Dennis. Yeah, I mean, that that became exhausting. And, you know, you just worried uh, every time you woke up during the season, you know, what is Rodman going to do or have done that's going to cause a big controversy? <laughs> um, you know, he was he was known to frequent a couple of nightclubs on a regular basis. He'd be out till 4 in the morning after a game. And, you know, you just didn't know what was going to happen next. And it got, it got to be kind of worrisome because Dennis – as, as everyone has talked about, not only in this documentary, but in other th- pieces that have been done on mm-hmm. him, you know, they did a separate 30 for 30 on Rodman's life. He's an introvert, and the only thing they can bring him out is excessive alcohol or, you know, the, the media spotlight. But uh, once again, you know, he was he was looking to make make himself a worldwide celebrity, not to take care of the local TV stations or, or yeah. the beat writers. So what would happen after games is he would – sit back in the training area you saw guys drinking back there and and if you wanted to try to get a shot at a, a Rodman interview you'd have to wait 90 minutes after the game and then generally what happened is he would come with some security and he would make the walk down that long hallway underneath the United Center to the players parking lot and he would clumsily try to handle a couple questions while six TV cameramen were walking backwards and you know 
people were trying to extend their microphone to get some kind of intelligible sound. And usually it was a waste of time. I mean, he would just mumble a few words and that'd be about it. Um, I, I really did not enjoy any part of the, of the Rodman Circus. Yeah, I, I could see how that would be, you know, exhausting. I, yeah, I, I thought that he was, was a big part of the uh, the 72 and 10 team. I think he, he still was was near a peak level at that point. But the last two years, he, his, his skill level deteriorated badly. A lot of it, I'm sure, had to do with his lifestyle. And, you know, he, he got a lot of rebounds because it was kind of the unwritten rule. You know, they'd let Dennis get the missed free throw rebound. And, you know, he he did a lot of uh, a lot of gimme rebounds on, on, on long shots and stuff. And, not not to disparage. He he was he was a great player in his prime, but uh, the last two years he was just a shadow of what he used to be, and he really wasn't a plus, that great of a defender anymore. Now we saw him, especially in that last finals, the scenes of him tripping Carl Malone and wrestling in the post. But I don't think anyone at that point was really afraid of Dennis Rodman's defensive ability anymore. He had become kind of a caricature of himself, and you saw that after the dynasty was broken up, he only played thirty five more games after that. So he he was pretty much done as a player and. Had, again, had they tried to bring him back for that strike-shortened uh, 99 season, who knows what kind of player they would have been getting. Now, I just I, I kind of want to ask, overall, you got to cover pretty much all of this, or at least both three feet. Do you ever look back, like you said you came to Chicago in the 90s covering it, look back and you know, after covering the Bulls for how long as you have now and then post that, that those back-to-back three pieces, the two three pieces, and think like, Man, I got I really kind of hit the lottery, kind of hit the jackpot coming in to cover this team right at this time perfectly, and then kind of having the contrasting view of it afterwards. You know, after covering those great teams, being just pretty much with the exception of the Rose years, kind of garbage. Do you ever, do you, ever you watch see, your like, mouth about Eddie Curry? You okay. watch your mouth. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie Curry, Tyson Chandler. Do you ever think like, man, I got really, really lucky walking in here when I did, getting getting in on this when I did. Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. When I look back over the last 30 years of being involved with the Chicago media, you know, you think about six Bulls championships, three Blackhawks Stanley Cups, both the Cubs and the White Sox won a World Series, and who would have thought the Cubs would ever win one? So, yeah, I've been very fortunate to be along on the ride for for so many great events. Um, You know, at the time when you're in it, you know, one of the things about us media members, we have a tendency to, to complain about, you know, some of the things that, that don't go the way we'd like or limited access or things like that. But, yeah, there are times where you pause and you go, this is pretty amazing that I'm watching the greatest player yeah. of all time. And, yep. you know, sometimes I was the, the young guy in a four-person sports staff. So, you know, the sports director and, and Jim Rose was the number two guy at ABC7. They covered the bulk of the playoffs and the big games. So I was mostly a practice unimportant Tuesday games against the Nets or something, you know, uh, kind of guy. So I wasn't really in the spotlight for a lot of that stuff, but, you know, just the chance to to witness the, the, the greatness of Jordan and those teams on a daily basis, yeah, that was pretty special. And I think watching uh, watching this documentary, I, I watched a number of episodes with my 27-year-old son who was, you know, like like Joe mentioned, that his first memories of sports mm-hmm. uh, were the last the last uh, championship because he can, he can remember that, but he doesn't mm-hmm. remember anything before that. But, you know, now to, to get a chance to tell some of those stories with him, having a couple of beers, you know, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun reflecting on it and, you know, giving him some insight into, into what it was like to be around that team. Cause it was, it was crazy. It, it was frustrating at times, but it was, it was pretty amazing. And, and Jordan was, was you know I'm glad a, a new generation of fans gets to see just yeah. how good he was mm-hmm. because he would literally put that team on his shoulders and carry that times because as, as great as Scottie Pippen was he really wasn't a primary scorer 
and they didn't have a lot of offensive help to, in, in either of the three-peats. You know, it was Michael against the world, and he took such a physical pounding, and yet he was the guy that would come and hit those clutch shots down the stretch when other guys would wilt. I, I just had an amazing appreciation for his talent. And, and don't forget, what was an eight-time all-defensive player, Mm-hmm. Um, he, he didn't shirk his responsibilities at that end either. So um, we, I was extremely lucky, as you mentioned, to get a chance to witness that. And it's something that, that you know, the, the documentary has brought back those memories and a chance for, for all of us uh, older heads in the media to, to kind of wax poetically on, on what we got a chance to see. Yeah, and any chance to do so uh, about Michael is is a justified one. But one thing that, I don't know, I, I know you guys caught it, but I don't know if our listeners caught it. On Wednesday night, they pieced together uh, Game 6 in Utah in 98, some really cool unseen footage with Costas on the call behind it. And the thing that kept showing up to me is that in the moment, Michael was so focused. But even in those moments after the final buzzer, he'd hit the shot, he'd made the steal, he'd hit the second shot. It didn't dawn on me that he looked like he was enjoying himself all that much. I don't know if it was supreme focus, trumping celebration, but did you get the sense that Michael was enjoying himself through this? Well, he sure was enjoying himself playing the piano back in his hotel room. That, that, there's no <laughs> doubt about that. <laughs> That was probably after a couple Miller lights. Yeah, I, th- I think he had a had a few beverages in him. But yeah, I mean, it was it was such a difficult thing for him to have to to, to carry that load, yeah. and people expected him to win. They expected him to be great every night. And on the occasional game where he you know he'd have one of those nine for twenty seven nights, and and the Bulls lose, you know, he, he would take the criticism that that he didn't shoot mm-hmm. well, and that's why they lost. I mean, they it, it wasn't like. Most nights, especially in the playoffs, you were going to get a 30-point game from somebody else. It was it was going to be Michael, and that last season took so much out of him. That's why it was really problematic of, of him coming back. I know looking back on it 20 years later, he said, well, we, we all would have came back, as I mentioned earlier. I, I'm not sure that, that he had it in him to muster up the strength to carry an aging team one more time. Uh, and I also think that in some ways – it's it's probably better it ended the way it did. I mean, he, he retires making that shot uh, in Utah to win the sixth championship, a perfect 6-0 and in the finals, and that's the memory that people will always have of Jordan. It won't be like, well, Michael got hurt in, in, in the playoffs and, and then and they mm-hmm. lost in the first round or whatever in 2000 or, or however it may have unfolded. Uh, in this way, people always have that image. I, I know he played two years with the Wizards, but that's become kind of blurred over over time that, you know, people always remember that last shot in, in Salt Lake City to beat the Jazz and win the sixth championship. And I think that really cemented his legacy, arguably, as the greatest player of all time. Yeah, it really seemed like after six and after three, the tank was absolutely empty. Um, I, I say what you want about the two years off, the impetus behind it, or, or whatever it may be. I, I think that this was the only way for this to occur. I don't think the conversation of eight straight or a seventh is even a reality. You, you put it gracefully there, Mark, that uh, this was it. He had carried that load for as long as he could, and we get to see an on-court legacy largely untarnished. Yeah, and, and I, I think, it, so let's say they they had won uh, in the in the lockout short season in 99, mm-hmm. and then he comes back in in 99-2000, uh, and, they, and they lose the finals, let's say. So he's 7-1 and one in the finals. I think that 6-0 and oh looks a little bit better. And I oh, think yeah. That, yeah. I mean, when, people, when people have that argument about who's the greatest of all time, 
and I know that's one of the things that, that LeBron James wants to be considered. He's openly campaigned for it. His record in the finals will be the ultimate trump card in any argument. I mean, you can yeah. go back and forth. Because LeBron is still, at, at his age, one of the best players in the league. He's playing at a remarkably high level. I have, I have tremendous appreciation for his skill as a basketball player. And he may get one or two more championships. But when it's all said and done, uh, I think people will look back the fact that he's he lost six times in the finals, and it's going to be well. You couldn't lift a, a supporting cast the way the way Jordan was able to do, and you can argue about the quality of opponents you faced in the finals, and, and that's an argument that I think really can't be won. But you know, the the the, uh, the trump card I think for Jordan backers is six and zero in the finals, six and, six finals MVPs. And just wait until we have to weigh into it this AAU championship that the Lakers are about to win at Disney World. That's going to be <laughs> that's going to be the actual asterisk in which we have to find out how much this banner is worth. But that's a conversation I think yeah, for another. I day. mean, you, you brought up how like you know Michael really carried the team, especially you know that that last season. I kind of knew that, but didn't really get to the extent. I think you look at the the box score of that game six, that clincher in '98, and that's a perfect kind of summation of it. Jordan had 45 points. The next highest scoring bowl was Tony Kukoc with 15. Then nobody yeah. else did double digits. There were a couple with eight and, you know, just a whole bunch of single digit guys. So really Jordan scored, you know, half the points. Him and Kukoc accounted for like, you know, 60 of the A7, which was um, just, again, I knew it was, he was kind of carrying the team. I didn't know it was, you know, to that extent. But, um, you know, you brought up some of the, you know, the, the, the memories and, and how, how nice it was to kind of share with your son um, you know, who just kind of had his first memories about this, like me and Joe. I, you had a great column uh, about a week or two ago about, you know, running into some Bulls tickets late and being able to, to take your, your son, Eric, to that uh, a game, regular season game in 98, had some interaction with Jordan. So uh, I just wanted to ask you about kind of that night and what kind of that night was like getting to, to bring your son to that game, introduce him to Michael and Jordan, kind of get that picture and, and kind of see that team firsthand before it all came crumbling down. Well, we knew that this was going to be the last season of the dynasty, or at least that was the understanding uh, from from Jump. And, you know, my son was about five and a half. And as a parent, you're always wondering, when is the right time to take take your child to a game? Because it can be kind of overwhelming for a mm-hmm. small child and almost frightening, you know, if if you get a situation where, you know, you, you place them in a situation that uh, they're, they're uneasy about. And... He had started, obviously, with my passion for sports. He'd been exposed to sports from the time he was born. Um, but, he, you know, he started to watch watch some basketball games a little more closely. And, you know, we thought we'd give it a try. Um, and I was able to get a VIP pass for him to go down on the court. And I, I really hadn't set out to have him to try to get a photo with Jordan because there was so much security around Jordan those days that, um, I, I didn't, you know, first of all, if I could get it done, and it's kind of a no-no in the media profession to ask mm-hmm. for autographs or, or pictures. But, you know, I knew it was, it was probably the only opportunity I'd have with my son, and the timing worked out that we got there just about the time that Michael got there. So, you know, we walked down the hallway, we bumped into Steve Kerr, and he was nice enough to take a photo with Eric uh, right in front of the locker room. And then we went further down the hallway, and, and I saw the media gathering. I knew that Michael was probably either – there just about to, to, to pull in and you know he um, he saw me holding my son shook my hand I said would you mind taking a picture and, and he was really gracious about it and and that that is, is a memory that uh, that Eric and I will have you know for the rest of our lives it was a, a special moment and and you know at the time 
at, at five and a half years old. He knew Michael Jordan was the star of the Bulls, but he didn't know that he was perhaps the greatest athlete. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was a lot of fun, and and you know we we took some more pictures out on the court and, and had had a had a lot of fun. Um, but you know at at the time he had no way of knowing uh, what a special souvenir that was going to be. And, uh, you know, it's something that, that every time that, that he comes by and we get on the basement and watch some sports, that uh, those pictures are hanging up and we get a chance to, to look at them and, and every now and again say, you know, that was, that was one heck of a time, something we'll always remember. Yeah, and that's it was worth it was worth fighting through the rush hour traffic on 290 to get there. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's why, that's why I was thinking at the time. I'm like, because we were stuck really bad. I'm like, oh, we're not going to see George. I, I was actually really nervous about it for a couple of days leading up to it because I'm like, well, should I try to get a picture with Jordan? And I just finally decided I was going to go for it. And then once we got stuck in traffic, I thought we were too late. But I guess Michael must have got stuck in traffic, too, because he was a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the most relatable things I ever saw in that documentary was Jordan Kennedy. And I didn't get into the United Center on one of those nights, you know, fighting traffic in on the Kennedy. I thought it was hysterical. Well, there's a lot of stories about uh, Jordan driving on the shoulder of the Kennedy trying to bypass track. When <laughs> that sounds about Michael. right. I don't think uh, I don't think anybody was going to ticket Michael Jordan for uh, you know leaving the lanes. But uh, yeah, I mean that that that's a, a experience that everyone shares, and that's why I think that the players who are currently on the roster don't know how good they have it to be living downtown and have the practice facility right across the street from the United Center because that drive from the Deerfield area to the United oh, Center sure. at uh, you know four thirty five o'clock in the evening. Not a lot of fun. Yeah, but, uh, you know, Mark, as you said, it really is not just the moments, but the people you get to share them with, and I'm happy that we could have you here and you share those moments with us, uh, you know, the moments with your son, the moments covering the team, and all of these different, uh, all these different moments in time throughout the 90s that really set the precedent in many ways that when you're from Chicago, you're a champion, and it's not a champion this year. It's a champion every year, and uh, I think that kind of transcended sport, and that was kind of the attitude we were raised with, and uh, we can't say thank you enough for, for offering your insight into this moment in time uh, in Chicago sports and in Bulls history, and uh, thank you as always, Mark, for jumping on the podcast here. I know I speak for Matt when we say, you know, you're always welcome here, whether it's last dance, first dance, or otherwise. Um, you always have a place on the Moose and Runes podcast, and we appreciate you jumping on, Mark. Well, I appreciate that very much. And like you mentioned, one of the things I mentioned to my son is that, you know, you're pretty lucky that in the in the Chicago professional sports in your lifetime, every time a Chicago team, aside from the Bears in the Super Bowl, got to the finals or the World Series, they won. They won. And, that, and that, that does not happen. I mean, this is a unique period of history where yep. all those Chicago teams won titles and never lost in a championship round. So that's that's pretty remarkable. And one thing I, I did we didn't get a chance to talk about is, you know, uh, Matt mentioned the fact that Tony Kukoc had, had 15 points in the last game. Yeah. That was the one other overriding thing that came out in watching this again, that how important Tony Kukoc was to that, particularly that last championship team. He made big shots in game seven against the Indiana Pacers, otherwise they might not have even gotten that far. And he hit some big shots along the way in the finals. So I, I, I also came away with a new appreciation for Tony. Yeah, I yeah. didn't realize that towards the end of that run, he was actually in the starting lineup. He wasn't really the yeah. top man anymore. He he jumped. Did he jump Rodman in the starting lineup? Yeah, yeah. Rodman okay. Rodman had left the team for that uh, infamous wrestling uh, appearance, and, but he was already he had already been benched by that point. I think, as I mentioned earlier, Phil had known at that point that, that Dennis 
Dennis was running on fumes too. So mm-hmm. Tony Tony gave them a dimension that they desperately needed as another guy who could score a little bit. And you know, I, I, Tony is is now still with the Bulls organization as an ambassador. He lives in the area, and you know, I think that fans are are getting more of appreciation of uh, who Tony Kukoc is all about too. So that's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I know by '98, I had already ran through a couple MJ jerseys. It was a Kukoc jersey for me in 98. I have to be honest. I don't know where that came from, but there are some there are some young Joe Musso pictures in a Tony Kukoc jersey. So uh, those have been, those have been fun. That, that, that's true. You know, a little slick back action. But uh, those, that's been fun, too, is calling mom and saying, hey, dig up some old pictures. I, I got to see where I was at in this time. And uh, there's, been some, there's been some crazy ones, I'm sure, uh, for all of us. But uh, here's to, uh, you know, staring at that picture of you and your son and enjoying that one for the rest of the time, Mark. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Matt. Always a pleasure to be with you, and I uh, look forward to talking to you again when uh, the NBA gets going. Let's hope yeah, we get really, really <laughs> appreciate we have. Let's let's get some more Bulls games on. We can talk about maybe, or, or be... yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Well, we got we got new direction. Things are looking up. Yeah, there you go. There, there's a little bit of optimism for the first time. <laughs> well, we will be sure to dig into the future of the Bulls at some point with Mark Shinowski. Mark Shinowski, but we appreciate you jumping on here talking about the last dance, Mark. Uh, that's Mark Shinowski of the NBA and Bulls fame. Yes! 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 History! We cannot say thank you enough to Mark for jumping on the Moose and Runes podcast. He, he is the most reoccurring guest. I think it's oh, exciting at this close. point. He's he's distancing himself from the pack, undefeated, six and zero. Soon enough, it's going to be the Moose and Ruins and Shanowski podcast. We'll go just back add. to the go back to the catalog because that could very well be the sixth Mark Shanowski appearance on the Moose and Ruins podcast, which would be quite apropos. That would be very fitting for for what we just went through and talked about with Mark. Well, thank you again to Mark for jumping on the pod, Matt. Uh, I think that's a perfect way to say hello and goodbye to the people. Yeah, I think that I think that's it. Um, have a great week, Joe. Great Memorial Day weekend. You got to work this and weekend. As always, yeah, couple couple days this weekend, couple days off. I am off on Memorial Day. Gonna but, get the, uh, gonna hit the links on Memorial Day. Gonna play? No, it'll be packed. I'm gonna play on Tuesday. So okay, that's fair. Same um, thing. Yeah, gonna get out there. Gonna swing it. You know, we got to have a little, at least a mention of golf here on the Moose and Runes podcast because we are a golf podcast. Uh, coming this weekend, we will have a recap next week of the Tiger Phil Brady uh, Manning match uh, that's going down on did you, Sunday. Did you watch the Skins match before we wrap up? Real quick, I did. I did watch the Skins match. I thought that it was a blast. I thought that the way that they produced it from a television product Fantastic. standpoint. It was fantastic getting to hear guys talk about the shots and really game stuff when they got to that last hole. Um, Ricky telling Wolf, hey, we need one here, kid, kind of challenging the young buck. Having those uh, those cool insights was very neat. So I'm hoping that uh, it's similar in the way they produce it here, TNT Turner Sports doing this one. And I think that uh, Chuck is going to be in the booth good and justin thomas is going to be out on the course walking with the guys so i think there's going to be a really cool dynamic out there but most importantly it is a peek into tiger's game as we approach a long stretch of really important golf beginning in i think what was the first major july something late june early july i'm there's been so many dates it's like like june 10th june 11th i think it's first day that's sure. yeah. That's not that's colonial. That's not the first major. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I you know, first we're going to get a peek at yeah. the Tigers game where he's at right now, leading up to some really important golf. So a lot to watch this week and a lot to enjoy. And we hope you enjoy it with your families safely, soundly, and cleanly. 
That's going to do it for this episode of the Motion oh. Runes podcast. For Matt, I'm Joe. Again, he's going to step on the so go, go ahead, you like Go ahead, You'll like this. You'll like this. If anyone has a hookup at Seminole, Joe and I would love to play it. Just yes, let okay. us know. If we'll you're be, soliciting We'll complete people, your force. Cut me off whatever you want to solicit people. Yeah, at Seminole. I mean, come on. All right. Say goodbye to the it's people. It's a Hail Mary. Goodbye, people. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome. <laughs> Chicken on the steak was phenomenal. <laughs>